0: Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Well, we do serve an awesome God. If you want to, hopefully, you have your Bibles uh, still open to 1 Timothy just as David read verses 12 through 17 for us, that's the, the passage that we'll be considering this morning. Uh, last week we did, uh, two weeks ago rather, we began this new series in the book of 1 Timothy and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this series. I know um, I, I mentioned this when I spoke about fellowship and community a few weeks ago, but I wanted to start by mentioning this again, but as we've been as your elders and pastors considering what direction it was that god's really wanting us to consider and and lead out in worshiping god and serving him this year we we had a lot of conversations about the the nature of our church there's been a lot of turnaround over the last few years since covid we have a lot of new faces a lot of people who have come back and just different conversations that i know many of us have with each other about the function of the church the roles that we play in the church And through all these conversations, we decided, hey, we really think we need to go through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, We we believe that as we work our way through this book, as we read the words that Paul had to share with Timothy, it's going to be very instructive in informing us on what expectations that God has on each and every one of our lives as members of his church, as members of the body of Christ. And so my prayer, and as we've started this series and as we continue to work our way through 1 Timothy... My prayer has been that I would be challenged by these, by these passages from 1st Timothy, but also that our church, that, that we would be very challenged and confronted and provoked by what it is that we look at in 1st Timothy, that we'd be willing to, to see what God puts forth in His Word in, in areas that maybe we have already determined uh, in, in our hearts and minds that are just being reinforced. There might be areas where we're mistaken, where God's asking us to adjust, and there's areas where the Lord's just calling us to a a more committed level of intentionality in our lives. And what I love about this passage that we're looking at today, verses 12 through 17, is that we get, once again, a little bit of an insightful look into Paul's testimony. He alludes to his own past, and he makes this statement about himself and it's all under this heading of the, the, the saying or, or is deserving, this trustworthy or faithful saying is deserving of full acceptance. And he makes a statement about myself, about himself. First, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. What we see in this passage is, ba- is Paul, rather, Paul building a foundation of the gospel after he's already given his opening address to Timothy, and as, as uh, Mike and Samuel taught last week, he puts forth his main point. This is the main charge that I have to give to you. It issues from, it has to be done in love, and it issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And he talks about how the law was put forth to reveal sin. And he goes, but it's in accordance with the gospel. So Paul gives his opening address, and then he says, this is your charge in love. It accords with the gospel. And then he builds off of the gospel, this position that we have as believers before he takes off with all of the specifics of how Timothy is supposed to instruct his church. I know Mike mentioned this a few weeks ago, but First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus we refer to as Paul's pastoral letters or his pastoral epistles. These three letters these three letters are very unique in that they are letters that Paul wrote to an individual and to, an in, to, to individuals who he had put in charge to lead and to oversee churches. Uh, for Timothy, the church that he was put to instruct and teach and lead was the church in Ephesus. Titus was, the Mas- well, he was over the Macedonian churches. And, and what we, what's really cool is we get this insightful look into the heart that Paul had for these men that he appointed to leadership and to overseeing these churches. And though, yes, these are pastoral letters, they are letters that really are hugely beneficial in informing the pastor on how they ought to lead and instruct their churches, the sentiments that are put forth in these books are for anyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ. That's why this is included in the canon of scripture. That's why we have this, why we study it. All of us are to take these things and to say, Lord, what is it, how is it that you're directing me to apply these things to my life I know David read it I want to read it again so if you'll look starting in verse 12 in 1st Timothy chapter 1 Paul writes to Timothy I thank him who has given me strength Christ Jesus our Lord because he judged me faithful appointing me to his service though formerly I was a blasphemer persecutor and insolent opponent that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength. Everyone says strength. I thank Him who has strengthened me. Maybe some of your versions say, "I thank Him who has empowered me." And it does come from the same word that we see for power that's used throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament. It just has a preposition added to it, but it's in dunamao, and dun where we get our word dynamite from. Uh, but in this is interesting in Acts chapter nine, verses 19 through 22. This is right after. Paul has his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, and Jesus comes and and blinds him and he gets saved, goes to Damascus, Ananias is found, finds Paul, Paul finds Ananias, he ministers the truth to him, he gets his sight back, and then this is verse 19. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has, and, and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. But Saul, we know this is Paul, Saul slash Paul, Saul, Hebrew, Paul, Greek, Saul increased all the more in strength, Saul, Paul was strengthened. How are we strengthened? Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 10 through 11, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit empowers us. This is the exact way that Jesus promised his disciples before he ascended into heaven. We quote this passage a lot in Acts chapter 1. Verse 8, they're questioning Jesus, when are you coming? He says, don't worry about when I'm coming back. Because you have a task right now. You're still here. You, You still have responsibilities. You will receive power when my Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, we are strengthened. Paul knew that he was strengthened and enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was given to him so that he could say such things about himself. Look, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ Jesus gave him strength by the power of his Spirit because he judged me faithful. He judged me faithful. How can anyone be judged faithful? We already talked about this last week, but right before this, we, 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 got, we have insight in verses 8 about what the proper use of the law is. Improper use of the law is any way that we use the law to try to elevate ourselves and belittle others, or vice versa. The the, the law can be misused if, well we know rather that the law is being misused when it puts God out of the picture and it elevates the person who's practicing the law. This is what self-righteousness, legalism looks like. And so when, when Paul says, The proper use of the law, and then he gives this long list of sins all the way through verse 10 through verse 9, the proper use of the law, based off of what we learn in Romans throughout the whole New Testament, is that it shows sinners that they are sinners. When we look at the law, we see it ourselves reflected in it, and we notice how dirty and tainted and depraved that we are. No one with with a true and clear conscience can come to the law of God and read it and say, I'm good. I've done. I've done. I've done. I've done enough. I've done a lot. I don't fall. I, I don't fall under this. I'm okay. I'm good. No one can do that. So, how in the world could anyone ever be judged as faithful? How can anyone be deemed or considered faithful? Well, as we have already said, he was empowered. Paul was empowered by the Spirit. And so he was enabled by the Holy Spirit to walk in faith. This is why he could say such things about himself that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse one. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I, he, he refers to himself as an example that's worth emulating because he was walking in faith. He was submitted to the Spirit of God and he was walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the parable of the talents, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30, uh, Jesus mentions the, the servants who get the five talents, the servant who gets the five talents, the servant who gets two, and the servant who gets one. And they're expected to, to take it, to be good stewards of it, to invest it, and then bring a return to the master when he comes back to receive what he gave to them, what he apportioned to them. And to the first two, to the five and two talents, they doubled their investment. I guess they, inve- they invested and they doubled what was given to them. And, and in both cases, what did the master say to them? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, and so I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The Holy Spirit empowers and enables us not just to be children of God, not just to, to be right before God. He enables us to do something with the grace that he has given us freely. He enables us so that we can in turn function in obedience. God gives us all sorts of resources. We've talked about this in previous weeks. We're called to be stewards. First Corinthians chapter four, verse one and two. We are to regard ourselves as stewards and slaves of of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it is him that we are serving. Colossians chapter three, verse 23 and 24. We are to regard ourselves as stewards, and so God gives us things to take care of. God gives us things to use for the purposes of glorifying Him and furthering the church. And He expects us to be faithful. Now, this would be cruel of Him to expect us to be faithful if it was left to our own devices because as we learn in Romans chapter 3, none of us is worthy. No, not one. None of us is good. None of us can could ever do such a thing. That's why when we read as we've read in Romans chapter 8 that we've been given the same Spirit who rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives in us. He empowers us and enables us so that we can sit in church and do literally nothing else with our spiritual gifts that he's given us. He's, he's enabled us and empowered us by the power of Holy Spirit so that we can just have nice sentiments before each other, smile and say, hi. Greetings in the name of the Lord. He's enabled us and empowered us so that we can obey him. So that when he comes back, we'll be able to say, Lord, thank you for empowering me. This is what I have to offer you. And, he can, and we can hear our master say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Paul is not being arrogant about himself. He's saying, Jesus has, has deemed me, Jesus has esteemed me, he has judged me faithful. But he starts by mentioning how he's been empowered. He's a ju- God is. Jesus calls me faithful because he enabled me by his spirit to be faithful. Paul, Paul, is, Paul is a faithful man because he's realized a few things about himself in light of his salvation that's been founded in Jesus Christ well done, my good and faithful servant, needs to be the commendation that we live to hear one day. That needs to be the driving force that guides us to glorify God, to see Him glorified. And the greatest reward that we can experience is is a commendation from our master to celebrate Jesus Christ alongside the fruit that we produce, the people that we lead to Jesus Christ for the rest of eternity. So he empowers us, and he judged, he he empowered Paul and he he judged or esteemed or deemed Paul faithful, and then he says, appointing me to his service. That word service, um, ministry, some of your versions might say that, and it's not, you know, a lot of times, as a a pastor, and a Mike and I have had this conversation before, and we probably have tried to awkwardly navigate this conversation with hundreds of people over the years. I know I have. Maybe not Mike, but I know that I have. People see like, "Oh, you're in you're in ministry." Or this idea of me being in full-time ministry. I'm I'm in vocational ministry. I, I, there's different ways of saying it. I get paid to do I get paid to be a minister of the gospel. But I, I kind of I sometimes sort of flinch a little bit and and, and get a little cringed up when, when when I think of myself as being in ministry like none of the other Christians are. Paul was appointed to the ministry, to, to, the, to the service for, for the work of God. That's all it is, it's just work. It's, it's, it's the work of God's kingdom. And if you're a Christian, I don't care what your perspective is. I really don't. You might disagree with me on this, you are wrong. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, you are called to full-time ministry. You've been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. I don't, I don't agree with you, Drew. Tough, that's what, that's what the Word of God says. That the blood of Jesus Christ has bought you for a, for a price. And scripture demands us to glorify God with our entire beings. This is your reasonable act of ministry. This is your reasonable act of worship. The, the, only, the only reasonable res- response, the only reasonable response in light of what Jesus has done for you on the cross is to live your entire being for Him. Now that doesn't mean, obviously, that all of you are going to stand up here and preach, if you're an accountant or if you're a, if you're a stay-at-home parent or whatever, a teacher, what, literally, you are a full-time minister that happens to be in whatever vocation that you're in. And if you, get, if you get that thinking wrong, if you think of yourself as an accountant first, and you just happen to be a Christian, you will never be the fruitful kind of Christian that Jesus has commanded you to be. You'll be the one, you'll be the, the third type of seed that was sown amongst the weeds, and, and though you take root, though you're in the kingdom of heaven, though you're a believer, you don't produce fruit. And if you don't produce fruit, then you don't get to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is the word of God. This convicts me too, church. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I can't be fruitless. Trust me. I've experienced it. I've experienced being a fruitless pastor. Paul was appointed to the service even though, look what he says, he was appointed to the service even though. I know so many of us in here have all of our even thoughs, but. Yeah, but, but you don't understand, you don't get, I have a, <laughs> I I have this, this ailment, and maybe it's, I have this past struggle, or you don't, you don't know, you don't know the sin that defines my past. You don't know the things that I've been guilty of. I know Jesus forgives me. You don't know the things that have disqualified me. And there are things that disqualify us from certain kinds of ministry but there's nothing that can disqualify us from being able to be used for the kingdom of God. Now, we could talk a lot about that. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, redemption is a marker of your life. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, newness is a quality that, that God deems about you. God would not command you God would not command you to be involved in his ministry and his service if, he, if there are people who were not able to do it, period. Jesus saves you so that he can use you for his glory. So whatever your even those are, whatever your but I do this, I have ADHD, I, I struggle with anxiety so I can't really talk to people. There's any, all of these excuses are bad. They're all bad. Not that they're not worth fleshing through and talking about. None of these excuses are good. Look what Paul says. Because I thank him. He's given me strength. He appointed me faithful. Uh, giving pointed me to his service. Though formally, though formally, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now, we, we talked about this, if you remember, we just went through uh, the gospel, or, yeah, the, the letter of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatian churches, and he, and he starts his letter sort of similarly, he talks about grace and mercy, sort of opens up the, the beginning reasons of writing this letter, and then he shares a personal testimony about himself to give a foundation of the gospel, and he writes in Galatians 1, 13 through 17, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia to be with Jesus. And then he returned again to Damascus. And Paul was extremely zealous. Paul was very, very passionate for what he thought was, was righteous living. And then he was rudely awakened when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. That's how he received grace. He says, I received mercy. He, though he was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church and an insolent opponent of the ministry, I mean, if you remember in Acts Chapter 7 and 8, he was the one, Paul, Saul was the one who nodded in approval to have Stephen stoned, the first martyr. Though he was all these things, it says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul needed mercy because he had acted ignorantly in unbelief. So who in here has not acted ignorantly in in unbelief. I'm serious, like is there anybody who has not acted ignorantly in unbelief? Okay, I'm I'm assuming then that all of you agree that you have all acted ignorantly in unbelief. Then This is what the Word of God is telling you, you are in need of mercy. You're in need of mercy. We all need mercy because We act ignorantly in unbelief. Look at this, he says in verse 14, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I love how he brings mercy and grace into this equation. Um, I love, this is how I like to talk about mercy and grace. It's sort of like the same thing, but the two different sides of the coin. Grace is God's unmerited favor. This word grace that we see used in the New Testament, it's God's unmerited favor. So it's the things that we get that we do not even sort of deserve. The things that we get that we don't deserve. Mercy functions the same way, but it's a different perspective of looking at it. If grace is, not getting, or if grace is getting what we don't deserve, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. So if I was to go up and slap Pastor Mike in the face, I won't, Pastor Mike. <laughs> he would turn and say, I'll turn the other cheek. <laughs> and if he did that, if he turned the other cheek, he would, be, he would be showing me mercy. Because really what I would deserve for all intents and purposes is a nice firm slap in the cheek right back from him. So mercy from Mike would be not getting the slap in the face in return that I deserve. And him turning the other cheek, the grace that's being exhibited there is the forgiveness, the the forbearance. See, he's giving me forgiveness when I really don't don't deserve that forgiveness. There's there's nothing that I've done to merit his forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So mercy and grace function beautifully with each other. And at the cross, we realize Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, when we stand before him as a sinner, we realize that I don't deserve an eternity in heaven. Yet because I believe, I get eternity in heaven with God. And what I do deserve is eternity separated from God in hell. But because he has shown me his mercy, and I, I believed in Jesus Christ, his mercy is extended to me, and so I am spared from an eternity in hell. And in the response that we ought to live faithful. Amen? Paul needed mercy. Paul needed grace. Look how he says, I love how Paul says this in verse 18. And when the grace of our Lord overflowed, when it overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I love uh, David Hassler that you said this in your prayer, but you said grace, and it's grace upon grace. And John chapter 1. If you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, I just want to look at a short passage here in the, in the first chapter of John's Gospel, verses 12 through 16. And as you read this, just keep grace in mind. Keep the unmerited favor of God in mind. Picking up in verse 12, and this is all in the context that the Word of God, who is Christ, the Word came to dwell among mankind. God made a dwelling place amongst people. God, it wasn't about, it's not about our attempt to reach God, but it's all about God's successful endeavor in, in taking on flesh and Jesus Christ coming and condescending to our level and taking on the form of a man and dwelling amongst us to live the life that we couldn't and die the death that we deserved. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right it's a right that's given to become children of God. This phrase, we're all God's children, is not true. We are all God's creations. We're, we are all made in the image of God. These are beautifully incredible things to be able to say about ourselves, regardless of literally anything. If you are if you're a human being, you are made in the image of God. You are created by God. But do not get this confused. We are not all God's children. I'm mean, going to hope everyone in this room is. I don't assume that everyone in this room is. I'm sure there's people in here who don't have actual relationship with Jesus Jesus Christ. But he says that all who receive him, the word, Jesus Christ, the one who dwelt, he has given us the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. Later in John chapter 3, this statement right here is put into deeper context when Jesus has the conversation with the Pharisee, Nicodemus. He says, unless you want to be in my kingdom you need to be born again and Nicodemus is like how can a man be born a second time that's weird what are you talking about well John gives us insight it's not it's not born of blood or the will of man or flesh it's 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 nothing it's not a physical birth but it's a spiritual rebirth that can only be made possible through Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit the word became flesh and dwelt among us we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, that's John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. See, Grace, the grace of Jesus, it's interesting, this word grace is not, is not used again in the Gospel of John after this. It's not, used, it's not used one more time. It talks about belief, talks about truth, we get, we get insight, but, 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 but John lays down the foundation and makes it incredibly clear. He says this is how we can function, to call our, the right to call ourselves children of God, the right to understand the, the glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of God, the ability to understand these sorts of things, the fellowship that we have with believers. We could expand this to all of these implications of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's all made possible because of Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth. Truth is mentioned 55 more times in the Gospel of John, but, but, it, but it's all dependent upon the unmerited favor of God, and it is unmerited favor upon unmerited favor upon more unmerited favor. We don't deserve it. We never could, we never will. It's just given to us freely. What are we gonna gonna do in response, church? This is the progression that we see throughout every page of scripture. God's initiative because we can't do it on our own. So he redeems us, he restores us, he gives us position, he gives us authority, he empowers us, and then He gives us expectation. And we are continually carried along by grace. Grace is the emphasis. And this is what Paul is saying. Grace is the emphasis in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, that it's the, the overflowing, far-surpassing grace of our Lord that's accompanied with faith and love that are all in Christ Jesus. And there's a lot here, but it's because of grace, accompanied by the faith and the love of Christ. Look at verse 15. I mentioned this earlier. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy or faithful and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul uses this phrase uh, five times. In the New Testament. And all five times that he uses it in the New Testament are in the three pastoral epistles. This saying is deserving, the saying is trustworthy or faithful. Or this saying is deserving of full acceptance. These faithful or trustworthy sayings happen five times in Paul's pastoral letters. Paul wrote these letters later on in his ministry. Probably towards the end, right before he was martyred. So by this time in church history, there had likely been many sayings that had become commonplace for most churches during that time. And so all five of these trustworthy or faithful statements that Paul makes, look at them and elaborate on them. I'll give you the five references, and you can look at them yourselves later. But they deal with primary doctrines of the Christian faith. They deal with the gospel itself. So we have our, and this is the first one that we have. First Timothy chapter one, verse 12 through 17. The second one is in First Timothy three. Um, all in verses one through seven. It's kind of the part that it's talking about. The next one's in First 1 Timothy four, verses eight through 10. And then the next two are in Second Timothy two, 11 through 13. And then the last one's in Titus three, right there in the first, that first part of Titus chapter three. These sayings are incredibly useful to remind believers about the foundational and core doctrines of the gospel. And so this is the first one that we have in Paul's pastoral letters right here in verse 15. And as I open up talking about this first one and and, and as we conclude today, I want to leave us with four things to remember that we see in this passage that shows us that the gospel does. I want us, these are, there's four things that I want us to to take to heart that that this passage shows us that the gospel does, what the gospel does. So the first thing, we'll kind of work backwards because I wanted to start with this point um, because Paul says, Paul starts by talking about his status and then he says, remember my former life. So I want to start here first with the first thing, the gospel humbles us. The gospel humbles us. So this, this uh, trustworthy or faithful statement that Paul makes, it's a little unclear as to whether or not the statement is both clauses that was common in all the church, or if it's just the first clause, Christ came into the world to save sinners, and then Paul just sort of adds that second clause of whom I'm the worst. Just has his own little addition to, p- to put himself into context. But we know at least that this saying encapsulates this idea. That Jesus Christ came into the world to do what? That's what, so v- Veto and I are trying to build in some catechism stuff. All, a catechism is just a series of questions and answers. That's all that is. So if you catechize something in your homes, that just means that you have a list of questions that there are certain answers to. That's all that means. And one of the things, some of the things that we're trying to do with our, with our boys, Mateo's old enough to where he's starting to remember some stuff, and so um, don't test him. He's three, so don't... <laughs> Don't be the, you know, I've heard, I've heard a lot of horror stories about, About, you know, you know, oh, like, pastor kids are the worst, you know, and stuff like that. I think maybe sometimes it's just because of the way that the church treats them. So don't, don't, like, go grill Mateo and be like, hey, Matt, your dad told us you do this, so answer the question right. But what we do with Mateo is we say, Mateo, why did Jesus die on the cross? And in his cute little three-year-old voice, he says, to save sinners. So he really doesn't... Really, he really doesn't understand the full implications of that statement yet. But the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Mark 2, verse 16 and 17 says, And the scribes and Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating, this is talking about Jesus, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a, of, a, of a physician. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This verse from Paul is incredibly important. And This, this verse in Mark and, and this concept in Christian, Christianity is foundationally important. We are... Are sinners. I've already made this point. And when we really see the gospel, when we really, when we really behold Jesus Christ, and Samuel talked about this last week, if you maybe went to the eleven o'clock service, anything that accords with the gospel, we can't leave out any part of the gospel. God creates perfectly. We were created with an intended design for a specific purpose. God's creation, the fall. We have fallen from that intended purpose because of the marring that sin has done in all of our lives. Redemption, Jesus came, he lived and he died and he resurrected, so everyone who believes will have eternal life. And restoration, Jesus is coming and he's going to make all things new and he's going to, everything's going to be wiped away and a new kingdom is going to be ushered in where we we will dwell eternally with God in heaven, worshiping the Lamb, worshiping, worshiping the Father. But we can't gloss over that second part, the fall. The gospel humbles us. Paul was self-righteous before he was encountered by Jesus and had a full understanding of the gospel. And as it's interesting, we see a progression in the kind of way that Paul referred to himself as he gets older in his letters, the way that he referred to himself in, in Galatians is not as intense as the way that he refers to himself in 1st Timothy, the the worst of sinners. We get that little snippet there in the middle in Romans chapter seven, where he talks about this, this internal struggle that happens between the flesh, between the spirit, I don't do the things that I wanna do and the things that I wanna do I don't do. I'm a wretched man. The more and more that we understand and realize the goodness of God, the perfection of God, the holiness of God, but the love of Jesus and how he has given himself up for us, we must be humbled. It humbles us. It puts us in the proper place before God. The gospel humbles us. This verse from Paul is incredibly important in how it clearly spells out that there is no too great a sinner. There is no, there is no too great of a sinner that makes us ineligible for God's grace in this life. Paul, in effect, of saying, if God can save me, the worst of sinners, then God can save whomever he wills. Remember, whatever your even-those are, whatever your but-eyes, whatever your but-you-don't-understand, Paul, Paul is putting all of these to rest, all of these excuses, all of these ways that we view ourselves outside of the grace of God And Paul is saying, like, look, if God can save me, God can save anybody that he wants to. The gospel humbles us. The second thing that the gospel does, we've already talked about it, is that the gospel enables and empowers us. Thank him, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me or deemed me faithful. So the gospel humbles us, and the gospel... Enables and empowers us because when we believe in the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. Second Timothy 1.7 um, You have not been given a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and a sound mind, or self-discipline, or self-control. There's a lot of different ways of translating that. But the idea is that this new life in Christ has been given to us so that, as I said earlier, we can be empowered to do something about it. So the gospel humbles us and the gospel enables or empowers us. The third thing that we've also already talked about is that the gospel appoints us, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. When someone obeys God's call to serve, God always equips and enables that person to serve. God doesn't just equip, I I made this point for the third time. God does not just equip us and empower us for no reason. So that he can appoint us to do the work of the ministry in whatever context that he's called us to. I mean, how revolutionary would it be? What, What kind of change would we see in our church, in our families, in our workplaces, if each and every Christian today, this morning, you decide, know Lord that I have been saved by grace you've humbled me and you've helped me realize in full that I'm, un, that I'm undeserving of all of these things and yet you have saved me anyways and, 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 and you decide today I am going to submit to God I'm going to search him in the scriptures knowing that his spirit is empowering me and then I'm going to assume that wherever I am I am there to be a witness to Jesus Christ to be a worker in the kingdom of God? What kind of change would we see? I mean, we always talk about revival and how our nation is going to hell in a handbasket and how we're so dissatisfied with all of these woke ideologies and we get super political about all these sorts of things. What are you doing about it? Practically speaking, other than just complaining and whining about it, How are you actively understanding that you have been empowered, you've been humbled, you've been empowered, you've been enabled, and you've been appointed to the work of God's kingdom? What are you actively doing as stewards and as servants of the grace that God's given you in whatever place that He's planted you in? And if your response to that, and this is for me too, okay, church? I'm not... (laughs) We're all on the same level right now. If our response to this question is anything other than I'm using it for his glory, then we're a part of the problem that we see going on in our nation, in our world, and in our context by virtue of not doing what we ought to. Now look, I can't, Drew Cook by himself can't, in a very marked sort of way, do a whole lot in the grand scheme of things, like right here and right now. What I've been given to do is just to faithfully serve God, make disciples, love whoever's across the table from me, and then just continue to do that over and over again every day. And then challenge the people that are in my sphere of influence to do the same. Jesus started with 12, and now there's supposedly hundreds of millions. The, the, the language that you see in Acts, there's just, there just a few dozen in the upper room. And then there was three thousand at the end of that day. And then God added to their numbers daily, daily those added to their numbers daily those who were being saved because the church was just being the church the way they should be the church. And then, and, and then, you see the language move from added to their numbers to the strength. The word of God multiplied greatly, all over the place because the church was just being the church the way that the Bible was telling them to be the church, and they didn't even have the New Testament finished yet. They just had the teachings of Jesus through the teachings of the apostles and they were interpreting the Old Testament for them in light of Jesus as Messiah. And the church blew up. And these ordinary and uncommon and educated men were turning the world upside down is what the Jewish leaders were observing and what the Roman leaders were observing. If we would just be the church practically, fundamentally, simply, on a daily basis, be the church that God has called us to be, Over time, we will see revival, we will. That's just the way that it works. That's the way that it has always worked. Pick up a book, study church history. That's how the church has progressed throughout the centuries. And it's how God is telling us to progress as the church. We've been appointed, the gospel humbles us. The gospel empowers and enables us by the power of the spirit. And the gospel appoints us to ministry then look what the gospel also does it says I'm I'm the foremost I'm the foremost but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who believe to, uh, to those who were to believe in him for eternal life see that's that idea of you're appointed to be an example so again the gospel humbles The gospel empowers or enables. The gospel appoints us to ministry. In verse 17, in the middle of his letter, look what Paul does. There it is. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God to be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. The gospel calls us to worship. The gospel calls us to worship. Do, do you see the cycle that happens here? We, we, when we're first saved, we're humbled. There's, there's never been a single person who has entered truly entered into the kingdom of heaven who is not humbled by becoming aware of their sin and seeing the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice. And there's not a productive or a fruitful Christian who has ever existed who doesn't understand that they have been empowered, at least to some degree, and that they are working in their ministry that God's appointed them to, to bear fruit. There's never been a Christian who has borne fruit that doesn't understand that they're empowered and that this is their job. But all of us fail. All of us fall short of living up to these standards that are put forth in scripture. And so what are we to do? We are to daily to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Piper says this in like almost all of his books, a lot of his books, preach the gospel to yourself daily. This this concept of of letting the gospel be the most important and significant thing to you, like what Samuel preached on in the 11 o'clock service last week, what is the main thing? The gospel. It brings us back to a place of worship. And when we are worshiping God and realizing more fully and more fully his holiness and his goodness, We're humbled before his presence. We confess our sin and we get right with the Lord and then he continues to empower us and strengthen us by his spirit. And just like with Peter who who failed greatly, Jesus helped him back up and knocked the dust off of him and said, go feed my sheep. We're recommissioned. We're appointed to the service that he's given us to do. And all of this is worship unto the Lord. To him, verse 17, to him, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank you that the gospel has enabled us. We thank you that the gospel empowers us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have come to dwell inside of us. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. I ask that as we really consider the weight of our calling to, to be ministers in your kingdom, Lord, it's an overwhelming task. I pray that you would daily bring us to a place of humility and submission. Father, just as we know what we ought to know based off of the word of God. I pray that we would respond to your word. We would respond to the gospel. Help us to live lives that are worship unto your name. Lord, we love you and we praise you.